Hey there and welcome. It is PNN. I'm your host, Brooke Hines. It is Sunday, July 11, 2021. And tonight we have a show. Tara Reid joins me to talk about her new lawsuit against Sally Albright. And on the Justice Report, Janine Moloff is discussing a new Supreme Court decision which seems to be doing incredible damage to the Voting Rights Act. So let's just get right into it. So this week I got to talk to Tara Reid, who um, published a book last year in October uh, called Left Out, When the Truth Doesn't Fit, as a memoir, looking back on uh, what happened in 1993 as she was assaulted, sexually assaulted by now President Joe Biden, who was a senator at the time in 1993 when she was an aide in his office. And she is now, she has a lawsuit against Sally Albright, who uh, thought it would be really fun to maliciously infringe on Tara's copyright for the book. So, what Sally Albright did allegedly was, according to the complaint, is that she uh, downloaded the book, made a PDF, and started tweeting out to her followers that, and one would imagine her bots also retweeted out to her followers and their followers, that uh, they'd, uh, don't buy, don't buy Tara Reid's book. You can read it here and we will provide you this pirated copy of it. And then that wasn't enough. Then she, uh, Sally Albright, got together with a bunch of other Twitter trolls and Facebook social media trolls and then read the entire work out loud on Facebook Live, which, of course, you know, Facebook Live works. It said it makes a copy of the recording. So uh end result is that the copyrighted work was pirated in writing through distributing that PDF maliciously and also distributed the copyrighted piece through performance. And of course, Facebook Live keeps a keeps a link to that. So all of that has been uh, recorded and available to people. Now, how do you know that? How does one know that this is maliciously infringing on a copyright? Well, Sally Albright, while evading a ban on Twitter, tweeted out that she's gonna buy Tara Reed's book and read it out loud, all caps, on Facebook Live. After I talk to my lawyer and make sure it doesn't violate my cease and desist, spread the word. No need to buy it. Um, perhaps she should get another lawyer um, because if her lawyer uh, told her that it was okay to do this then uh, uh, that's not very good advice and then you've got um, Brave Knack also known as Real K Hive Queen Bee and Bianca Della Rosa you know so in this lawsuit are the contours you can see the contours of the kind of operation that was going on behind the scenes uh with democratic party elites you've got uh six people named in the lawsuit 
Sally Albright plus five John Doe's. We know who a couple of the John Doe's are just um, from from being a, around for a while. And each one of these folks, if this lawsuit is successful, uh, they could be liable for up to $150,000 for each instance of maliciously infringing on the copyright. So I am super psyched to bring to you today a discussion that I had earlier this week with Tara Reed, and uh, we'll just get right into it. Here we go. So tell us a little bit what's going on with this Sally Albright situation and the lawsuit. If you can talk about the lawsuit, I don't want to. Oh yeah, I I can talk about it. She's avoiding service right now. um, And um, we have filed with the court for the cost and, you know, going forward, I think will be hers because she's avoided it. Um, And then tweeted about avoiding it (laughs) basically um, implying that she's avoided, but she, um, had read my book out loud on Facebook and then encouraged people not to buy it and that she would email the PDF to them for free. So that's copyright violation in case you wanted to know. Um, mm-hmm. It's very harmful and it did harm, you know, it did harm things. He, she, they were trolling it. They put bad reviews all over Amazon over it. Um, and, you know, Sally Albright is a political operative who said she publicly that she signed an NDA an non-disclosure agreement for her troll farms. So she sends out an, an ugly tweet, right? And then 50 others will like agree with her. Those are all what's called sock pup- puppets. Mm-hmm. And they're all fake accounts that are all connected to her. So it's, it's a very um, ugly way to go after people. Um, who's doing it? I'm not sure, but um, to give some context, Sally Albright started going after me the day after Bernie Sanders dropped out. Before that, they were going after all the Sanders supporters and Sanders Uh himself. And then they started attacking me um, within 24 hours after after he dropped out of the race. And I'm not a political figure. I wasn't even, I wouldn't even consider myself a public figure at that point. You know, um, although the law does, I I considered myself a private citizen that was Mm -hmm. simply coming forward about a crime that was committed in 1993. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, um, he was um, running for the presidency and as a political figure, then, um, you know, that I, you know, just was the target for a lot of vitriol. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it was a very coordinated attack. And um, I know that Joe Biden, according to FEC, spent um, $2.2 million on his public relations Um with Anita Dunn's firm, um, Knickerbocker. So yeah, so he was really going to a, a very concerted effort. And I don't know if he's connected to Sally Albright or if Sally Albright's connected to another millionaire billionaire or to another think, you know, a political operative group. I don't know. Now, Anita Dunn is significant because she was involved or the founder of Time's Up. Time's Up, right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Time's Up was the overarching organization that put forth the Me Too campaign, right? Right. Yeah. No. And of, you know. Yeah. So it's to me, Me Too is just trashed. It's uh-huh. just, you know. Yeah. It's 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 a hashtag. It's not real. 
Absolutely. And I, I feel like your case really puts the lie to it. And there's a, there's a, a, a little wrinkle here. Um, in 2017, I was at a, uh, uh, gathering of daily Co's people and political operatives in death Valley. I wrote about it on my Substack, and I'm telling tales out of school. Uh, and what they were doing was they were getting together and they were saying that that what they wanted to do was for everybody to go back to their states and find dirt on uh, on Republicans and political opponents. And the understanding was that the dirt that they were looking for was sexual in nature, you know, like any kind of sexual improprieties. And our job was to go out and find those those sexual improprieties and uh, elevate them and make sure that they were talked about. Now, I wasn't an insider. Like, I was sent for uh, as a proxy for the uh, progressive caucus here in Florida. Mm -hmm. And so I was, I was kind of just observing and thinking, what the hell are you guys even doing? You know, like this sounds crazy. And then I got back and so that was March, 2017. And it wasn't too long, like maybe a couple of weeks after I got back and all of these, uh, uh, accusations started flying uh it happened in florida to a, a number of state legislators that were uh, from both sides of the aisle and then we started hearing about uh al franken so what they were talking about in death valley was something they were all like they were already rolling with it they were already doing it, it was already a political operation so it was already in, in motion then? Yes, it was already in motion in, in 2017. And I think what okay. they were trying to do is to just get more operatives on board and just to pull more people in. Uh, and it, as, as I was reading your book, and I, I was reminded of that, and it just made it all feel so much more artificial to me that, you know, it, I know from that perspective, seeing through that lens that that they, they set out with the intention of going after Republicans. But then when it turns out that the Democrats had all kinds of issues, then all of a sudden they didn't want anything to do with it. Right. Right. And that's, and that's, that's typical of, of, um, you know, the hypocrisy around um, the whole issue. Um, And you've seen it play out like with Cuomo and uh and with biden and the hypocrisy around that and um you know the, the way this you know wagons circled around both of those powerful men and the wagons are circled because the behavior that uh that that you're describing that is you know led to this lawsuit uh is is absolutely malicious and aggressive and it's and it's meant to it's meant to do you harm and 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 everybody who's on the left is feeling this from from these people it's not it's not neutral they're they're actually doing harm and do you have any thoughts on you know how come leadership doesn't come out and and say 
hey, you guys, stop doing that. We don't want our brand smeared with your K-Hive stuff. Um, they're actually coming out in support of it. If you saw Kamala Harris's stuff, she supports. In fact, if you saw the latest tweet where the um, where one of the K-Hive trolls uh, put out a fake book cover of me and then said, um, uh, Tara Reid has a new book. It, she's a lying white, you know, C-word. Um, so, I mean, it was pretty shocking, right, on Twitter. Mm-hmm. But... You know, there's another picture of this guy with Kamala Harris. I what what, there, what leadership does, and I can tell you this because I worked on congressional campaigns. Mm-hmm. Now I worked at a time when there wasn't social media the way there is now. Mm-hmm. But how it is is they distance themselves and they just say, "You make it happen," like like whatever. Yep. You know, sure, yeah. So they just basically, get, however, it's win at any cost. It's like war, and they even call their campaign offices war rooms that that term that was coined um very kind of testosterone patriarchal kind of bullshit and you know instead of looking at it as war you know the all the respect is lost if you're if you're just going after dirt um on someone else you're not it, it distracts from the issues that you're talking about so let's say two candidates are pretty similar in their you know platforms that's a lot of times when they'll go on the attack of the other person personally. And, you know, it's ugly. And in my case, um, my, uh, my, you know, rejection of all of this is that I'm a private citizen. I wasn't mm-hmm. running for any office. I was coming forward about sexual assault. And something that was very difficult to talk about is someone who's very powerful. And I thought people should know that before they elect him president, he did this. And it happened. And if they don't believe me, fine. But why do they have to smear me? Um, you know, and, and Biden, you know, being Biden wanted me wiped off the face of the earth, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. And if he couldn't do it physically, right, he'll do it this way, destroy my reputation, my ability to work, my ability to function and, um, you know, do it through that method. You know, there's probably like three separations between him and Sally Albright. Who knows? I mean, they may not be connected at all, at all. Um, but but the same goal is trying to be achieved, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, you know, so until the NDA, like when we go forward with the lawsuit, you know, perhaps Discovery will bring forward who hired her and who paid for those troll farms. That would be lovely. And, and I would assume that in, in the same spirit, you said, you know, they, they just tell people to go out there and get it done, you know her Sally Albright as a consultant, I'm sure she gets that go out there and get it done. And probably not to commit copyright infringement. Though. That's- exactly. Exactly. Yeah. She's, she's totally gone over the edge with, with that. <laughs> yeah. So it seems to me, I mean, I, I'm just spitballing here, but it seems to me at some point and I've got my fingers crossed, but it's, seems like somebody is going to cut her loose and stop protecting her. Maybe, I don't know, but, but um, you know, whoever it is like either ordered her to do a copyright infringement and like her, let her take the fall. And it was a very, you know, it was a very coordinated thing or Mm -hmm. she came up with it on her own, but either way, it doesn't matter. It was malicious and it did harm and it was wrong. And you know, the trolling is the trolling, you know, whatever. And, and, you know, Twitter is supposed to deal with that. 
But copyright infringement is really serious, and it de- and it does a lot of economic harm, which it did. And then, of course, you know the the negative, you know they were trying to you know negatively review it and all, whatnot. I wanted to uh, compliment your counsel on a very clean and concise complaint. I think that this is one of the just most concise and to the point, no bullshit. Uh, a lawsuit I've ever seen like and and mm-hmm. and, I, and I've seen these things from in the political realm over and over again where especially if it's Republicans you know who are doing the lawsuit they put all of this political claptrap in it you know it and mm-hmm. it, it doesn't help and I just love how clean and this is just to the point uh and and I think it really shows maliciousness it shows intent the dates on here blow my mind because didn't your book what was the date of the release of your book it was the end of october so they they were they were on they were on it um, right away these dates are october she had already been trolling me so yeah yeah. these dotes dotes these dates are october 27 so that is like right right when you were publishing it releasing yeah Mm -hmm. so so calculated for uh, maximum potential to hurt you economically. Oh, yeah. Now, this other thing that happened uh, in, in your July 2 piece in RT, uh, and, and by the way, I've been enjoying your, your op-ed pieces or your, your essays in RT. I think that that's a really cool um, uh What's the word I'm looking for? Not not venue, but but cool form to to go for. I I just love the form of an essay. Uh, it yeah. makes me happy. And uh, so Facebook now thinks that you are they're, they're they're suppressing your name as a search word, and they're they've labeled you a dangerous extremist. And you say that big tech censorship is out of control. So. Tell me, tell me your thoughts on, on on what's going on here. Well, the person that does my some of my social media because it's a bit much for me is Avalon Claire, and she's just a really kind graphic artist, very talented. She volunteers her time, and she gathered a lot of supporters to help me, and um, I really appreciate the people that do. And she um, just was trying to post my primo radical video. Um, interview. She was trying to post it on Facebook. And when she did, um, she was able to post it. She went back to check on it. And, and then every single time she would try to click on it or click, you know, open it up. Um, that picture of me would come up with a warning about extremists, dangerous, and did she need help or support? And so she, she tweeted about it. And so there's a public tweet about it. And, um, so I, you know, I know that before when we were doing the book, we were doing a fundraiser for a nonprofit, for a sexual assault nonprofit, and um, we <clears throat> were trying to get some ad pages on Facebook, and we were unable to because Facebook suppressed my name saying, the message came back saying, I um, could not do that because I was, uh, uh, how was it put, Suppre- uh, it was suppressing future legislation, my name. And before that, I was called election interference. So, interesting. So they yeah, so I couldn't get ads. So she even tried it under her name to get the ads, still wouldn't allow it. 
So it's not clear. And, you know, I wrote about how it felt to have my picture and have that, you know, kind of screenshot what that, what that meant. But Mm -hmm. like, she was trying to find out, okay, what exactly was the material that was extremist or dangerous? What, what link, what link did I click on? And that's what wasn't clear. It just had my picture and had that. So Mm -hmm. whether it's primo radical or me or, but, but the censorship is really um, stark and, and strange. And, um, you know, we need to look at that. And, you know, I am not interfering with future legislation, so I don't know why my name is suppressed for that. It's a very odd uh, way to, to put it. Future legislation is like, like future crime, like Minority Report or something. Uh, yeah, I know, right? I don't know what Facebook is doing. It's basically, they're just trying to not have me, my name or anything about me. Like people talked about like whenever they would try to click on my interviews, it would disappear. Any good ones. Um, it, the, it, it just was constant censoring of my story throughout the election before the election and after. So, uh, you know, but, but what I guess my message is to the audience is you cannot care about my story or not believe me, but if that happened to me, it's going to happen to you or to someone else on some other matter that the government doesn't want to talk about. Right. And what this means is that these platforms that we have uh, come to be depend on, I remember back back during Occupy, for sure, uh, people absolutely depended on Facebook to uh, to organize and to get together. And that was after all that stuff that had, had happened with Arab Spring. And so, you know, there was this, there was this uh, uh, swell of uh, support for doing that kind of work online. And now it's all being tamped down and it seems to be tamped down in a very partisan way. Uh, like it, it's very specific. It, um, I, there was something you said in, in here too about Facebook, uh, which really resonated with me. I've, I've not been on Facebook for many years and at least two or three years. And you said something like, uh, uh, let's just leave it to the boomers and the <laughs> older women who are, who are gossiping and stuff. And that is exactly why I left. That was, that was, I, I didn't find there to be anything left of it. Um, now I do, yeah. I, I, I do depend on Twitter. And I think a lot of people moved from Facebook to Twitter and, I, I really hope this doesn't follow us over there. Have you experienced any problems on that platform? On Twitter? Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I get, I get um, shadow banned. I get suppressed. Um, I'll have followers all of a sudden drop out that are saying they're liking my things, and then they have to refollow me. Mm. Um, they won't verify me, even though I'm qualified. Yeah. Same deal. Wow. Wow. I can't believe yeah. you're not verified. I didn't even notice that. Oh, no. Uh-uh. Yeah, I, I tried, and they rejected it. So I posted it. Because <laughs> I was like, and Richard Medhurst, by the way, can't get verified either. He tried. Wow. Right. Unbelievable. Jackson Hinkle. Wow. Um, so if you're anti-imperialist, I think it takes time. 
Absolutely. And, and <laughs> that, that's a whole other conversation, but there is, there is a lot going on there with uh, anti-imperialism and, and that particular platform being used for, to amplify um, the interests of empire, I guess we could say, uh, you know, something just kind of switch it up a little bit. Something that vibed with me as I was reading your book is uh, this thought, you know, is it way back then when you were going through all of this and, and I think it was right prior to the, um, to the assault and you had been having, you've been hearing things and seeing things happen around on the Hill. And you said something along the lines of, uh, that the idea that a Democrat had sexual sexual misconduct in their past didn't deter your loyalty. And I felt the same way in the 90s, uh, especially during the Monica Lewinsky thing. Like, uh, I made the worst argument for uh, supporting Clinton through that, and it was, that just makes him more like everybody like everybody you know has uh you know things in their past that are or present that are it was the worst uh uh what's the word i'm looking for um like the democratic party had totally colonized my my, my mind or something <laughs> and I, yeah, it was in total I mean, I, denial I, I know what you're talking about you know like i felt like i was part of the problem in the 90s um, and then when it happened to me, then it was like, oh, and I got it. And then I look back on that and I'm thinking, how did I enable this kind of culture? Because, you know, I, I went to work for Joe Biden after the Anita Hill. I should have, you know, been more, no, like he treated her and he did treat her terribly. And, um, you know, the way he questioned her and the way he challenged her, it was so misogynistic. And, you know, but back then I thought he was the greatest guy and I thought he was a good legislator and I thought he was pro, you know, women's issues. And this is before the, this is before kind of the, you know, the violence against women act, this kind of came with violence against women act came right as I left right before I, it was like germinating right then, but it came after like in 94 with the crime bill. And, you know, he was always against the violence against women act voted against it until he needed his crime bill passed. And then he all of a sudden was the author of it. And, and that was done by his staff. So that's you know, interesting. Was very calculated. It was very calculated. And by the way, the violence against women act isn't necessarily great. It incarcerates. Uh-huh. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when, but you know, we need a more holistic educational community based wraparound response to domestic violence than just incarcerating without, you know, educating and providing resources. You know what I'm saying? Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Yes, I absolutely do. Like, like right now it's, uh, the services for women along these lines are very siloed and, and I feel like it puts women more at risk because, you're kind of set off to the side and it's it, nothing is integrated. It doesn't wrap around, like you said. Uh, and, and, you know, when you, when you take these issues and you put them in the context of Capitol Hill and Washington, DC, 
and mm-hmm. in, in, in the the halls of power, mm-hmm. it's it, it's just it, like I. Hopefully, for our daughters and granddaughters, it will be better. But I don't know how. I don't know how we get there. Right. But you I don't either. But I do know there is one pathway forward, and that's educating our daughters and our and like doing what I'm doing as far as coming forward and speaking out. You know, my daughter made the comment that he was too powerful, and mm-hmm. I was like, hell no. You know, this is this is why more reason why for me to do it. Because we can't have generation, like, it's almost generational abuse. It's got to stop somewhere. Now, you know, parsing out sexual harassment from sexual assault, those are two different things. So when you're talking about sexual harassment or workplace safety, that's a very nuanced conversation, and a lot has to go on around it, and a lot of growth, right? But sexual assault is straightforward. It's a crime, and it's an assault. I mean, if you're, if you're you know, entering someone or doing something without their consent sexually, that's sexual assault. So, mm-hmm. you know, and each state has their own definition of the different types and the different, you know, penalties involved. But what he did to me was, you know, no bones about it. It was, it was sexual assault. It was then. I was too scared to go forward to the police. My mom wanted me to. And I remained fearful. And then, you know, what happened in 2019 and 2020 to me kind of compounded it. But then I got angry and I was like, wait a second, wait a second. Let's look at this. I, it, it's basically perpetuating what's, what's essentially rape culture, patriarchal culture mm-hmm. of, of, of just taking women without their consent. And it's not just women, men are assaulted as well. Mm-hmm. And um, in fact, many people that reach out to me, um, you know, are, are gay men or straight men that have been and victims of childhood sexual assault or adult. And there's such, there's even more of a stigma in some ways of course. Um, around their stories. And um, so it's really poignant when they come forward and talk to me privately. But again, a lot of these people don't want to talk publicly as far as Joe Biden himself, you know, there are other people that, were sexually assaulted. You know, there are other people that were harassed by him. There's and at least just, eight, including you, who came forward. Well, no, there's more than that. Wow. There's more that you haven't heard about. Like, I've talked to um, three people personally. And if I've talked to that many and know of four and more, and how many are there? And then, you know, of course, there's just rumors. But, I mean, that are verified. How many are there then, Right. Well, we've because all I'm just one person. Imagine like, yeah, we, we've all seen the video of how handsy he is. And the way that you described the kind of escalation of that handsiness in the mm-hmm. office right. really helped me see how his method kind of works. You know, it's it's, you know, create that that that. A moment when you break someone's boundaries and then you keep pushing their boundaries until you get them in a spot where where it just goes all the way or too far and it and it's it, it's very clear to me now as an older person how coercive and awful that is mm-hmm. yeah yeah i mean remember Whoopi goldberg made the comment 
people um, about Lucy Flores really derogatory. Like, well, if someone put their hand on my shoulder, I'd just brush it away. And it's like, no, you wouldn't out there your boss. Mm-hmm. And in her case, not if they just donated to your, you know, made sure that your campaign was going forward. She was running on a political campaign. Yeah, like, what are you supposed to do? Like, you know, you're in public with cameras on you in that moment. Yeah, she did. She didn't turn around and slap his hand away. She she froze. And and you know, and who is Whoopi Goldberg to say how people react uh. to unwanted, you know, touching and lack of consent, right? She's so disappointing. This is about power. It's not about affection. Exactly. Uh, it's about power and control. He's not He's not some doddering old man trying to be affectionate. He's creepy. Mm-hmm. And he was creepy in his 50s, like when he did what he did to me. Um, he was trying to get me to consensually have sex with him, and I didn't. And he got angry. And that's what happened. And then when I almost tried to speak up, he obliterated it so that I couldn't even get a job on the Hill. And then when I came forward in 2019 and 2020, oh, my gosh, you know, they tried to have me imprisoned, as you know. Yeah. So from there. Well, and I I was talking about this on the show last week, and I I, I think it was when the Sally Albright stuff came out. I forget why I brought it up, but uh, it occurred to me that for a woman, there is no good answer. So spurning that advance, they see you as a threat. But let's say somebody doesn't spurn the advance. Let's say somebody gets involved with that guy, that that person Mm -hmm. in power. You're even more of a threat. You know, exactly. Damned if you do and damned if you don't. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to, it's a lose lose. It's definitely a lose lose. And I remember in that moment facing that reality. And also, he was my father's age. He had hair plugs. I wasn't attracted (laughs) to him. Not that hair plugs are bad. I just, but to me, they are. I just, they would gross me out. But anyway, um, he just grossed me out. I just, I wasn't attracted to him in that way. I thought of him as like a father figure Mm -hmm. kind of person. He wasn't, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And I and I had a boyfriend at that time. But irregardless of how I felt about him, even if, like, let's say I was, it, it didn't give him the right to take my body and do what he wanted with it at all. And, and that's you, the whole point about sexual assault. And you do a really good job in your book, which I want to mention is um, uh, Left Out, uh, when the truth doesn't fit in, it's available. I uh, got the Kindle edition on Amazon and it was a really good read. And I liked where you were with regard to this, where you were talking about how women that you knew had at the time staffers had become involved with uh, powerful men yes. and how that didn't work out for them either. Nope. Nope. There was one that had a consensual affair and I had to pick her up on the side of the road and take her home. And she was all drunk and she thought he loved her and he left her on the side of the road in the middle of the night, you know, so no, he didn't love her and he used her. And then she went home. She was like barely, she was younger than me. She was barely like probably 23, 22, you know? So again, it's kind of going back to that Bill Clinton thing like Monica Lewinsky, Monica Lewinsky was very young. Mm-hmm. When you think about how, because I was, when, when Biden assaulted me, I was 27 and I felt young then, but imagine a 22 or 21 year old trying to decide to have a, a consensual affair with the most powerful man in the world who's in their fifties. She's no, a baby. 
She yeah, was she an was absolute baby. baby. I mean, well, and you she f- fell in love with him and thought she loved him and he used her. Yes. He she was mm-hmm. smitten and uh I think you mentioned that, that that your daughter is of college age and I know when I was 20 and 22 I thought I was old, but being 55 looking back I see like I was my brain was not developed. I didn't mm-hmm. understand power relations and no. it, I just now it freaks me out that you know kids are being sent to be interns on the hill where there's all of this power and all this crazy stuff going on and I I yeah, don't know if the girls are ready for it, if the girls, you know, if the young women are ready for it. Or I, men. I or wouldn't men. have been. Or men, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm telling you that a lot goes on there. A lot of bad things happen there. And, and you know, um, look at Chandra Levy. Yes. She didn't survive it, right? Right, and nobody remembers that because of 9-11. Right. But it was but her bones were found in Rock Creek Park. Yeah. Like her bones, remains. Like nobody even knows what happened to her. That's pretty gross. And, and she was involved with a, you know, a very, he wasn't even that powerful. He was a powerful person in California mm-hmm. and then had just gone to the Hill. And, uh, you know, that, if, you know, and then his chief of staff got caught throwing out the gifts that he had given her, uh, Condit. That was Congressman uh, Con- Gary yeah. Condit. Gary Condit. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. California and, 18th. Right. And I remember him because, I was working for state Senator Jack O'Connell and we were forced to volunteer one weekend to go walk precincts for him. And I didn't want to, and I met him and I remember at the time just thinking there's, he, there was just something vacant about him, mm-hmm. like just dead eyes, you know, vacant. And so when I heard that news, I immediately thought he killed her. Wow. I, and that was the first thought I think I thought of when she was missing, I thought she's dead. And sure enough, they found her bones. And I was like, oh, he killed her. He did it. Um, and they wow. never caught him. And they never, she, he, she, yeah. And, you know, and, you know, I, it's because we've lived, I lived in D.C. Like, we know, like, what it's like. Like, these men have everything to lose. And I remember saying that to friends. Like, what are you doing? Like, they have everything to lose. Mm-hmm. Like, if you, if you, yeah. And you don't. And <laughs> there's a difference. Absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> and so it's interesting that even though I was so cautious and did not get involved with those older men, um, you know, it still happened. And, and I was approached <clears throat> by, um, and I think I mentioned this by, I can't really say it was someone in the Clinton administration, but I was approached just, you know, he was flirtatious and he asked me and I said, no, and he was fine and he walked away or whatever, but he was married and had a mistress and he still tried to get me to go out with him. This guy. Oh my God. It was a prominent person in the cabinet. And I mean, like, and later his mistress got revealed and there was some talk about like taxpayer money being used to Hauser and all this other stuff. So it was like a public scandal. And I remember reading that thinking, holy crap, he was doing this at the same time. This (laughs) he was married and had this person. And, you know, he was this kind of well-known cabinet member in Clinton's thing that had, you know, a bit of charisma and and so, but you know, the, to them, the interns, the, the female interns or whatever, like, it's like a candy store. They just think they're, they're, they objectified, were objectified at the time. Well, and it, from the standpoint of somebody like myself who has done a lot of, 
you know, lobbying, you know, going, doing activism lobbying, not, not like lobbyist lobbying, but ac- mm-hmm. activist lobbying on, on the Hill. I have always been struck and the people that I've been with have always been struck. We look around and we're like, every staffer down here is just very attractive. <laughs> like, that's an attractive bunch of people that, that work in the Capitol. Like, where do all these good looking people come from? <laughs> well, and it didn't, you know, I don't even I always think it was that way, but, but it, it's just, it's interesting that that's how, like I was hired at the interview, as you know, mm-hmm. and had been um, a model and an actress before I got there. And I didn't really think, you know, cause I'm not a traditional, you know, I'm a brunette and I kind of have more, you know, different kind of looks. So I didn't really fit into the blonde perky look. Right. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really anticipate that I was, that was what even happened to me. I did in Hollywood because it does in Hollywood. That's just how it is. But I didn't anticipate it um, on Capitol Hill naively until. And then of course, remember I interned for um, Leon Panetta mm-hmm. and Leon Panetta was such a straight shooter, very serious man. There was none of that nonsense in his office. Like none of that happened. Like I, I couldn't even imagine Leon Panetta doing that. And you said in the book that it was at Leon Panetta's office that you caught the political operative bug. So you obviously yeah. had a, a, a good experience there. So like to kind yeah, of, turn- it, was, it was okay. I w- it was, it was okay. It wasn't great because I was an intern, so it wasn't mm-hmm. that great. But but I did I did get into the intellectual side of it because that was the focus in the office. Ah. That was the energy. Yeah. And so it was this intellectual pursuit having to do with policy or whatever. That's what really grabbed your your attention and and your passion there, I guess. Yeah, I was a bit bored with Hollywood in the sense that like I loved acting. But like we, I hadn't gotten a lead role or a big role in a film, only walk-ons or extra work. And then I, I did a lot of theater, but you did a lot of just sitting around and waiting. And mm-hmm. I just didn't want to sit around and wait anymore. I wanted to live. I, I felt like I was just waiting to live, you know? And, and so I went out because I happened to be good at political science and my mom was an activist and an artist. And so I went out to DC thinking, oh, this is it. I want to, you know. At the time, they were putting together in his office the Marine Sanctuary Act. I observed some of the um, backroom operations that went into effect to try to get the Marine Sanctuary Act in place, which is an amazing thing that protected that Monterey Peninsula from oil drilling Uh for for decades, and I'm so happy it was there. So I felt like that was the work, right? Mm -hmm. Environmental, animal issues, people issues. And then I went to Biden's office. So, yep. Yep. Well, now, how does this leave you, though? Uh, Just to kind of wrap up. So this is this is an enormous I I mean, like, like, like this is a a life changing thing. And now here you are. You are you are adored by my whole tribe of people. Let me just say that. What oh, are, thank you. I mean, seriously, the 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 courage and the equanimity and just you know your poise. You are you are an inspiration to to, to me and and to everyone I know on Twitter. It tell me after all is said and done, how do you? how do you look at voting and electoralism versus activism now? Like, 
how do you think, how, where do you want to put your energy? Well, you know, I'm doing the Medicare for all March. I'm going to, I was asked to speak um, in LA on June 24th. So I'm going to be there and I'm going to be speaking about Medicare for all because healthcare is a human right. And I truly believe that. I think education is a human right. And, um, and environmentalism is actually, I mean, is the most important thing we can do right now because we're literally on fire, right? Mm -hmm. Our whole planet. And, um, you know, but we need to really go to the heart of it, not, you know, the virtue signaling that's been done, um, to some of these, uh, you know, big corporations with their, you know, the green, the, the green movement doing this or that. No, we need like really hardcore, like it, we need to stop fracking. We need to get off fossil fuels. We need to look at alternative energy sources and we have them and we can use them now and implement them. Um, I want to still, you know, speak loud and clear for plant Palestine because they are being ethnically cleansed and Israel is committing war crimes. And, um, I feel very strongly about that. And, um, you know, sometimes people push back a little, but um, on that particular issue, and I would suggest they check out Richard Medhurst's um, material and some of it by Glenn Greenwald and educate yourself and Katie Helper because they have some really good shows and articles kind of, you know, laying out, which is a very simple history of basic occupation and then, you know, annihilation of, of unarmed civilians, basically. I cover a lot of um, Glenn stuff on this show. I will, since you mentioned it, I will put links to Med Medhurst and um, Katie and Glenn in the uh, show notes. Yeah, so they they have really good out. good um, shows, and you know, uh, uh, Left Bitches podcast is another one that's good um, with Ryan Wentz. Ryan Wentz is the one who got the knock on the door from the Highway Patrol because he did a critical tweet of AOC. Oh. Yeah. I yeah, didn't realize that. So, so he's on left bitches now. Yeah. That's Well, no, he's been the host the whole time. I didn't know yeah. that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's why it was kind of weird when that happened. Yeah. He okay. was already, cause he was talking about Palestine raising awareness. He was talking about anti-imperialism and the empire and then boom, he gets a knock on the door. So yeah. Well, so I have one last question and I'm sure. just dying to know what, what did you what did you study in college? And the reason and I'm gonna tell you why I'm asking this. Uh you're just two years older than I am. And I feel like uh I feel like our generation is the last generation to have been afforded the ability to get a a broad education. Like when you were in school, what were you studying? Where did you want to go? You know, what what was the whole thing about? Well, the original trajectory was Juilliard, remember? Mm -hmm. And then in my book, I discuss what happened. You, um, that my father. I'm so mad still, at your father. I just, yeah, yeah, because that was that was probably my that was where I wanted to go. I wanted to just be in acting and and be in 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 uh, as an art form and and that. And I may have moved on. I always wrote wrote poetry. I was always interested in literature. I didn't choose to be an English major because my brother Michael was, and he was a reporter before he died. Um, I didn't choose that because he suggested that wasn't um, as lucrative. He suggested something else. And so of course I picked political science. 
Nice. That's probably the worst <laughs> idea. But I had just a general liberal arts, and that's what's missing now, I think, a lot times in colleges is the liberal arts, um, yep. the generalized ancient history. Um, you know, back in the day, not when I was in college or you were in college, but our parents probably, they required Latin. And in certain law schools, they used to require Latin. And now I'm thinking we should learn that. That's yeah. a really good skill to have. But anyway. Um, Raised by my grandparents, I, yeah. they they insisted I take Latin. So everybody right. knows how to speak Spanish and I can just barely work my way through you know, looking at Latinate. But, you know, I understand the romance languages a little bit better now. But I but Absolutely. That, yeah, you could pick up like Italian or Spanish mm-hmm. really well. Yeah. And, you, you know, it's it's the liberal arts thing. Like as I was reading your book, it just shines through. You have an understanding that is broader than, you know, just one you know, just looking through a keyhole, you, you've got a, a larger picture. And I think that that's what makes your writing so uh, interesting and, uh, and lively. And um, I hope to keep reading you in RT because these, these op-eds I think are just, just fabulous. I have a new op-ed that's coming out. Well, I have to meet the deadline. Tonight. <laughs> it's coming out um, this weekend, tomorrow or the next day um, on Cosby. Um, I interviewed um, Nicole Egan, who is the author of Chasing Cosby, mm-hmm. and we talked. We just had a chat, and I got some quotes from her and then wrote an op-ed based on our conversation. And then um, RT, I'm going to be working uh, to maybe put together a podcast in the next month or two. Great. So I'll keep you posted. Yeah, yeah. So I'll keep you posted. And you can be on my podcast. Awesome. I'm psyched. Well, um, so what, what I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. What was your interest in college and did you kind of look at politics at that time? Yeah, I did. I was, uh, I was a, my goal in college was to always stay in college. And, and so, which I could do as an undergrad because I had I, I was an independent student and I was the last year that you could be an independent student and get Pell Grants as an independent student. So not taking anybody's else's income into, uh, into consideration, which my parents right. were super poor anyway. So it wouldn't have mattered. They were on social security. Uh, and I want, so my grandfather studied humanities. My Mother, my biological mother studied uh, uh, the romantic poets, and I wanted to just understand everything. So I wound up in the philosophy department, but ended up doing most of my work in political science, uh, in the art building, visual arts, and uh, and then in grad school, I went upstairs to the sociology department. And, uh, you know, had some fun up there with anthropology and sociology. Just basically everything was about social change. My whole question was, how do we understand what's going on and how do we move it into a better direction? Nice. So you kind of had the social justice bug from early on. Yeah, I was the the, <laughs> the first week I was at school, I uh, I. I replied to a, a story that was in the newspaper that the students for peace and justice needed a um needed people to join and so i showed up i was the only person who showed up there were four grad students there and they're like congratulations you're president <laughs> ah. and so 
that's how that started. And, you know, it ended up starting two or three other organizations on campus and then a campus newspaper. And then later uh, uh, started my own newspaper out in, uh, out in the community. Good for you. Yeah. I miss newspapers, but we're, we're moving beyond that. We're moving beyond it now. We're pretty soon. Everything will just be on holograms. We won't even have the devices, right? That's right. Uh, Holographic, holographic projections, maybe. <laughs> Obi-Wan, um, you're our only hope. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, thanks for having me Thank on your you. show. I really appreciate it. Just and, delightful. Um, yeah. And then look for me uh, if you want to, if you're in Los Angeles, I'll be speaking June, uh, July 24th at, um, and for the Medicare for all and, you know, look for my novel. The last snow tiger is coming out in the fall and that is about Russia. Um, and it's the one that kind of got me in a little bit of trouble when I first came forward, I was in the middle of writing it. So yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's fun. You'll, you'll like it because that's when I got called a Russian agent because I was writing that novel. And so people were, were throwing that out there. My, my story, the last snow tiger is about the friendship between a young Russian girl and a, and an American girl with some Russian roots and it's their friendship and the connection between um, them is very strong. And then a tragedy happens and then things go on and there is some political intrigue, but I switched the script and in it, America isn't necessarily the good guy. So switched it up because I'm tired of seeing that narrative where they, where they vilify Russia. So yeah, it's time to flip the script and, and it's time for us to humanize each other. Well, sure. yeah, and, and we, cause we all are. And I mean, just, and we all connect on the same levels as far as we all want to be safe. Connect, we all want safety and connection and to be loved. And, and, you know, I just really think that when you look, it's hard to hate up close, right? Like it's easy to just um, go into rhetoric, but like if you're close to another culture, close to another person in that culture, you can really um, learn all the commonalities rather than the differences. I want to thank Tara so much for spending some time with us. I will have her information down in the show notes where you can find her online and you can find her memoir. And we have the justice report up next. And we're here with Janine Maloff with this week's Justice Report, uh, discussing a new SCOTUS decision that guts the Voting Rights Act even more than it had been gutted before. So, Janine, tell us what's going on here. Okay, well, you know, as you know, in 2013, the SCOTUS, the Supreme Court, uh, decided a case now known as the Shelby case. And the Shelby case dismantled one of the two, one of the two major major enforcement measures of the Voting Rights Act, and that was Section Five. Now, Section Five required that states with a history of racist attacks on the voting rights minorities would have to pre-clear any changes in state voting law with the federal government. Either they'd have to do it through the Department of Federal Department of Justice, or actually find a federal judge. And this was because of their history. Now, the Shelby case, uh, the majority decision was decided by Chief Justice John Roberts, who, in short, has made it his mission in life to destroy the Voting Rights Act ever since his days at the Harvard Law School. We'll get into that a little later. But in the Shelby decision, 
John Roberts uh, basically said that, well, that was then, this is now. And because at the time we had a black president, of course, racism of the polls does not exist anymore. And so he tossed out the preclearance requirement. Seriously. Uh, and that introduced, that opened the door for the state to come up with another form of Jim Crow, or as I call Jim Crow 2.0, more voting restrictions of all sorts of asinine provisions, uh, whether it was voter ID laws or basically making it a felony to hand out food and water to people in long lines, this is what happened. So that's number one. Number two, there was another section of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that was also for, it was designed to provide some form of enforcement of the voting rights of minorities. And that was known as Section 2. And Section 2 basically allows people to sue states and municipalities for voting rights abuses. So that's what, and Section 2, the case that was decided this week, the Supreme Court heard the case of Brnovich versus the Democratic National Committee. And in this one, Justice Alito, writing for the majority, decided that Section 2 could basically be tossed as well. And we're going to get into that a little bit. Keep in mind, Alito isn't alone. He was assigned to do, to write this majority opinion by John Roberts. And this conservative block has proven that they are hostile to the voting rights of minorities. And some of the rationale is really asinine. But we have an unlikely hero. You know, in Shelby, we saw Justice Sotomayor um, write the dissenting opinion, and she called out John Roberts on basically that opinion, called him out for the racism that it engenders. This time on Brnovich, it's Justice Kagan, who usually doesn't really say a whole lot, but this time around, she called them out, and she called it uh, basically Justice Light. Um, she called the what this law, what this decision created a a law-free zone. So let's get into it. So the Guardian talked about this, and the case in Brnovich, which is the one we're talking about that was decided this week, uh, basically was a case that made it all the way up to the Supreme Court from Arizona. Now, this is basically a case, this, this is the last case in a string of cases from the Supreme Court where the justices, at least the conservative majority, have made it quite clear that they will not do anything to cease any anti-democratic voting laws, especially those that prevent discrimination against racial minorities. Okay. So the Arizona case does deal specifically with Section 2, okay? Besides allowing people to sue, Section 2 prohibits any voting rule that denies equal access to the ballot box based on race. Now, it's a provision the civil rights lawyers have used for quite a while to challenge the boundaries of voting districts, especially when they keep moving about, uh, last minute especially. But they've also turned it, to more recently challenge discriminatory voting practices and policies like overly restrictive voter ID requirements, cuts to early voting, 
you know, and so on and so forth. But the what I'll call them out, the racist enablers that are that are basically the conservative block on the Supreme Court said, no, we're not doing that. We don't believe in Section 2. Uh, the ruling in the Arizona case, the Brnovich case, authored by Alito, said Section 2 could only be used in a much narrower set of circumstances. And then Alito laid out five factors for the courts to consider when evaluating challenges to voting laws. And this is where it gets really asinine. Those five factors included whether an alleged voting restriction goes beyond what he called the usual burdens of voting. And he also said you had to consider whether that disparate impact on minority voters is small or large. Okay, so apparently the Supreme Court, the conservatives on the Supreme Court will tolerate uh, injustices that occur to minorities if it's a small percentage of the population, which in Arizona, you know. So Alito also said the judges should consider the motivation behind a voting law challenge, or a voting law change, I'm sorry. So I'm confused. How can the courts determine truthful motivation? What happened to the need for, you know, actual evidence which proves damage? But apparently under Justice Alito and the conservatives, you don't need real evidence. You can just accept the word of those who would restrict voting rights for minorities, that their motivation, they didn't intend to restrict voting rights for minorities. And if the hurt happens anyway, well, if it only happened to a small percentage of people, it doesn't count. That's what Alito's basically saying. Now, Alito went on, he said that if Section 2 were to be read broadly, it would lead to chaos in elections. And he went on with this diatribe saying that civil rights groups would then be able to challenge the most, as he calls it, innocuous of election rules. Okay. Um, and that, again, is also an asinine charge because in order for any case to get into court, you have to have standing. And that means a reasonable case for the court to accept it, uh, not frivolous. So that any frivolous lawsuits, as Alito is, is implying, wouldn't even make it to the SCOTUS or the federal courts. But that's another story. Um, and my question to the Supreme Court is, why are the conservatives working so hard to maintain an election system that is difficult to navigate for minorities unless the conservatives on the court have an intent to not only pursue voter suppression, but pursue an attack on democracy itself. And this is not since Dred Scott has there been such a conservative block of clearly racist justices that are working desperately hard to deprive people of color of their rights. I'll just say it. Now, Keep in mind, Alito statistically doesn't really have any um, any justification for this idea that there would be chaos if Section 2 were left alone or for a broadly read. Uh, because Section 2 cases, according to this writer, are, one, very complicated, they're very expensive to pursue, and they're time-consuming. And winning them is very rare. So I don't see where all these wild uh, court cases are popping up all over the place, as Alito is implying. It just doesn't happen. 
In fact, the writer of the Guardian piece said that since 2013, there have been just 61 Section 2 cases that were filed. Okay? And 23 of them were successful by 2018. And that was as documented by one amicus brief filed with the Supreme Court, and that was from supremecourt.gov. Okay? Now, as a result of last week's ruling on Section 2, it's pretty much impossible to challenge a voting law. But let me back up. Because of the Brnovich decision of last week, it's going to be basically impossible to challenge any voting law that isn't explicitly racist. Okay? In fact, um, we have a, an expert here, David Gans, who's the director of the Human Rights, Civil Rights, and Citizenship Program at the Constitutional Accountability Center, wrote a po post on SCOTUS blog, and he said that all the factors in Alito's bogus test are basically, quote, tools to be utilized to throw voters out of court. And it's true. Now, Justice Elena Kagan, writing for the minority, called Alito out and her five other colleagues. And she said that Alito's majority opinion is providing a, quote, mostly law-free zone. Okay. She also went on to say that the five factors that Alito claims are, quote, mostly made up. Kagan also wrote that, um, excuse me, the, so let me start back up. Kagan also wrote that the court's majority, quote, turns a blind eye to how voting discrimination actually works. And she also, she also wrote about how basically the most powerful voter suppression strategy is to pile small inconveniences on top of one another to the point where it makes it nearly impossible to vote. And she compared it to basically a death by a thousand cuts. She also called it equality light. To a direct quote from Kagan, quote, in countenancing such an election system, the majority departs from Congress's vision set down in text of ensuring equal voting opportunity. It chooses equality light. Efforts to suppress the minority vote continue. No one would know this from reading the majority opinion, end quote. <clears throat> Excuse me. And this is significant because right now uh, civil rights groups are watching because there's going to be a major fight in Texas. Uh, state lawmakers are considering new voting restrictions in a special session that begins, uh, I think, next Thursday. And then you have to consider also that we're six months after the January 6th insurrection. And yet a quieter assault on democracy is continuing because they're pushing more election lies and voter restrictions. And that's as reported by The Guardian. Now, The Guardian also wrote uh, Kagan's what they call righteous response. She called it tragic to go on with her know, her decision, okay? Um, you have to understand, by weakening Section 2, um, this is going to make it much harder to vote. It gives a green light to those that would pass measures that suppress the right of minority voters to vote. Uh, and this is not just Jim Crow 2.0, but it's also going to have an effect on 
Republicans, especially ultra conservatives, stealing elections. Because again, it's not just about whether you have a right to vote, it's whether or not your vote will actually be counted. So <clears throat> the Republicans have proposed hundreds of measures across the country suppressing the right to vote and making it more difficult. And that's according to the BrennanCenter.org. So once again, what Alito is saying in this case is that challengers to any state law have to prove, among other things, these five factors, that a restriction went beyond the usual burdens of voting. Once again, it is just ludicrous. Um, so to quote Kagan, quote, the court decides this voting rights case, I'm sorry, let me start again. To quote Kagan, quote, the court decides this Voting Rights Act case at a perilous moment for the nation's commitment to equal citizenship. It decides this case in an era of voting rights retrenchment when too many states and localities are restricting access to voting in ways that will predictably deprive members of minority groups of equal access to the ballot box. In short, the Supreme Court has destroyed the Voting Rights Act. Um, Kagan spends a lot of time in her opinion describing the history that led to the passage of the Voting Rights Act and the significance of the law, and then she accuses her colleagues of purposely damaging and destroying it. Uh, to quote Kagan, what is tragic here is that this court is that the court has yet again rewritten. Quote, what is tragic here is that the court has yet again rewritten in order to weaken a statute that stands as a monument to America's greatness and protects against its basest impulses. She also, in her criticism, denounced the Shelby decision as well. Uh, and that's the one, as I said before, gutted uh, Section 5. To quote Kagan, Maybe some think that voter suppression is a relic of history, and so the need for a potent Section 2 has come and gone. The remark is a, uh, so basically she goes on to say, um, efforts to suppress the minority vote continue. No one would know this from reading the majority opinion. So she's basically taking a swipe at Roberts as well. And she goes on to explain that the Supreme Court doesn't understand voting discrimination. I would say they do understand and they don't care. They're fine with voting discrimination. The conservatives of the court is, conservatives of the court are fine with voting discrimination as long as it benefits their side. Okay, so she's saying they don't understand it. I'm saying no, the conservatives of the court are corrupt, corrupt and racist. I'm just gonna say it. But a pivotal part of the majority opinion in Brnovich is that Arizona's laws in question don't impose a big enough burden on minority vo voters to constitute a violation of the Voting Rights Act. That's it. It has to be a big enough burden. And Kagan points out that what might seem like a slight inconvenience to a lot of white voters can be a severe burden on others. Uh, you know, the ban on handing out water and some, some little, little snack to people standing in long lines. You know, if you're in an affluent white suburb, you can go in and out and vote quickly. But if you're in an urban center with a lot of minorities, those lines stretch on, and we've seen it before, for hours, sometimes a better part of a day. And so people that are sickly or elderly, they can't do that. So it is a severe burden. Or if you're standing in line for, say, four hours waiting to vote, only to get there and be told, oh, we changed your polling place. 
and they purposely sent misinformation. Or maybe they purged your ballot because you didn't vote in the last election. Then you have to go all the way down to the, um, the election board headquarters, try and fix that, and come back. And if you are a lower-income person and you do not have a car, and you're, say, in a, in a uh, city like St. Louis with horrible, horrible public transportation, you basically won't get to vote. All right. So this, this is not just a disconnect. I think that the conservatives on the court know exactly what they're doing. I think Kagan's being a little too kind. Um, and she said, though, that one of the most effective forms of voter suppression is death by a thousand paper cuts, where you just keep piling the inconveniences on top. So basically you run out the clock. You know, but, you know if you go back and forth like that and you don't get back to the polling place by 7 o'clock, you're locked out. You essentially run out the clock so minorities don't get to vote. Okay. And once again, it's just plain wrong. So Kagan went on, she, they quoted her further. She said, suppose a state decided to throw out 1% of the Hispanic vote each election. Presumably the majority would not approve the action just because 99% of the Hispanic vote is un, unaffected. A rule that throws out each and every election thousands of votes cast by minority citizens is a rule that can affect election outcomes. If you were a minority vote suppressor in Arizona or elsewhere, you would want that rule in your bag of tricks. You would not think it remotely irrelevant. All right. She goes on to say, um, except, quote, except in a pair of footnotes responding to this dissent, the term Native American appears once. Count it once in the majority's five-page discussion of Arizona's ballot collection ban. So, of course, the, that community's strikingly limited access to mail service is not addressed. In the majority's alternate world, the collection ban is just, quote, a usual burden of voting for everyone. And then Kagan pushed back on the voter fraud myth and basically said that the United States has a long history of using claims of voter fraud as a pretext to suppress the votes of minorities. She goes on and is quoted, throughout American history, election officials have asserted anti-fraud interest in using voter suppression laws. Poll taxes, the classic mechanism to keep black people from voting, were often justified as preserving the purity of the ballot box and facilitating honest elections. You know, she also said that the ruling, you know, Alito claimed the ruling was based on careful consideration of the text in Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, but Kagan notes that no, that he's just basically making things up, that Section 2 categorically prohibits any voting law that denies equal access to the ballot box based on race. And to quote Kagan, quote, the majority's opinion mostly inhabits a law-free zone. It, congr it congratulates itself in advance for giving Section 2's text careful consideration. And then it leaves that language almost wholly behind. Every once in a while when it's lawmaking threatens to leap off the page, it thinks to sprinkle in a few random statutory words. The majority instead found its decision on a list of mostly made-up factors at odds with Section 2 itself. That's the way to go. So we've got this situation going on, and it's, it's really criminal. And the Supreme Court is leading the charge, the conservatives on the court, that is. So... When we look at this, there's, it goes back to this basic discussion. Is voting, 
here in the United States, is it a right or a privilege? And what's the difference between a right and a privilege? Okay. If voting is technically a privilege in the USA, then shouldn't we demand it as a human right? And a lot of lawmakers spend a lot of time, according to this other article, um, and this was, let me see now. You know, they spend, let me back up. A lot of lawmakers spend a lot of time trying to blur the distinction between whether voting is a right or a privilege. And it's very significant. If it's a right, then nobody can take it away from you. But if it's a privilege, you get privilege by, one, taking it away from others to give to someone else. So privilege is uh, basically, is, privilege is based on inequality. You take something away from one group to give extra to somebody else. But with every privilege, privilege can be taken away as easily as it's granted. It's not a right. And we're talking about how our government is going to function, how our laws are going to function. That voting has to be seen not only as a right, but as a responsibility like it is in Australia. And this is something that we need to we need to look at. But we also need to look at the basis of voting in this country. You know, and there's a schism between the Declaration of Independence, the language there, and the language of the Constitution. You know, the Declaration of Independence has all these lovely sentiments about everybody being equal. We have all, and we, we, you know, we have these rights. But then when they sat down to write the Constitution, they made voting a privilege. So initially, it was only white men who owned property, period. We've come quite away from then, but still, we still have to change this because when we see what when we see voting as a right and it, it should be it is a right it's a human right but when you start that slow erosion of a right into a privilege then basically it creates opportunity for lawyers to add all sorts of nuance and exceptions to this virtual bureaucratic maze that most people have a great difficulty navigating. The Supreme Court's attack on voting rights, it affects minorities, but also affects low-income people, and it was designed to do so. So these opinions were written in The Republic by Leo Morris. He's a columnist for the Indiana Policy Review. He was a finalist in editorial writing for the Pulitzer Prize Committee. We're going to talk a little more about is voting a right or a privilege in the U.S. from a very unlikely source, the corporate law journal of all places. And they really talked about this in some depth. They basically said privilege is a benefit. It's enjoyed by some. And it basically, it's granted by disadvantaging some, another group. A right is something that we're all entitled to with legal guarantees and moral principles. Well, this journal, they, they looked at a study that was conducted in 06 by Peter D. Hart Research Associates. And what they found is that a lot of people, a lot of participants in the vote saw voting as a privilege. All right, and this is something that's very dangerous. 
when you see voting as a privilege instead of a human right, it's much easier to discriminate them because it's basically the idea of privileges. You can take it away if you think somebody's misbehaving. And again, this is really in, uh, well, let me back up a little bit here. So they mentioned how in Australia voting is a responsibility. And there was even a law, the Human Rights Act of 1998, established the right to vote as a human right. So when the United Kingdom tried to disenfranchise British citizens who were incarcerated, um, the Human Rights Court found that the UK was in breach of human rights because they denied 80,000 incarcerated British citizens the right to vote. Now, that's the way it should go, but that's not what's happening here in the U.S. And they, they mentioned how the U.S. has systems of voting that are determined by the states that are highly inconsistent. Um, we have Election Day on a Tuesday, which is then makes it more difficult to vote. Um, and these systemic issues really are designed to deter people from voting. And they talk about how the election system here in the U.S. is often used by parties to suppress voters to get a favorable outcome, uh, which is a fancy way of saying that when you have all this voter suppression going on, you're cheating. You're stealing. That's simple. So, and unfortunately, we're stuck with a constitution where the founding fathers left the time, manner, and places of holding elections to the states. Okay? And basically, you know, the founding fathers decided, in our, as based in Article 1, Section 4, that the time, manner, and places of holding Senate and representative elections, quote, will be prescribed by the state legislatures, and Congress may alter such regulations. See, and that's the problem. The state legislatures are calling the shots. Like, they're basically, instead of being one nation, we're like 50 little nations. And each state uses various contrivances and cons to deprive minorities of the right to vote. And this article from the Corporate Law Journal basically said that the framers of the Constitution basically decoupled voting rights from citizenship. And that's the ultimate hypocrisy uh, between the promise of the Declaration of Independence and the reality of the Constitution. The Declaration of Independence says that a government's only legitimate if it is formed through the, quote, consent of the governed. But for most of our nation's history, it hasn't worked that way. And that's really what we're talking. So we had all these voter suppression laws and even constitutional barriers to uh, people of color voting, women voting, and so on and so forth. All right. And they go into the history of Jim Crow and all that. I'm not going to get into all that. We're going to move on. So... We also know that the Supreme Court has had some assistance, okay? Uh, I believe it was just recently, I think it was Justice Alito, that gave a talk at the, um, I believe it was the Heritage Foundation. Now, justices are supposed to separate themselves from political activity because it's seen as a conflict of interest. But again, Alito got away with it. Now, I'll have to double check that. But 
And we know that a lot of voter suppression laws throughout the country have been sponsored by ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, the Heritage Foundation, and other groups like that. Um, so the Supreme Court has failed to protect voting as a right for some time now. And they go in this particular corporate law journal goes into a little history. They point out that in 08, the Supreme Court approved an Indiana voter ID law, uh, even though the court conceded that it had a partisan basis. But they still okayed it because um, the voter ID law was not seen as, quote, excessively burdensome to most voters. That's the leeway I think that Alito used. And um, that opinion was written by the late Scalia and for John Roberts. Oh, no, I'm, I take that back. That opinion was written by Scalia writing for himself, and Chief Justice John Roberts and Alito concurred uh, in separate opinions to uh, basically make the suggestion that proper level scrutiny was more like, quote, whatever the legislature wants. So if the legislature in a particular state wanted to discriminate and not look like it was discriminating, I guess that those justices would be fine with it. And again, some of these Alito factors, some of these things, are some of these things he's talked about are very vague. Exactly what level constitutes something to be excessively burdensome? You know, most judgments and most laws contain criterion. Uh, Alito wrote these factors; they're very sloppily written. Actually, there's no there, there's no real quantifiable specifics. Then they talk about the Shelby case in 2013. All right. They talked about more abuse from state legislatures. Uh, and they talk about the case of Crystal Mason, because there's some states that have pushed for aggressive, um, aggressive punishment for minor violations of election law. So Crystal Mason was a black mother of three from Fort Worth. She was on supervised release for a felony tax fraud charge. She mistakenly cast a provisional ballot in the 2016 election. She didn't know it was illegal at the time, and she had to wait until the end of supervised release to vote. And her ballot wasn't accepted, and it wasn't counted, but she was still convicted of voting illegally and sentenced to five years in jail. Now, given the state of police abuse in this country, it wouldn't take much to intimidate black voters and other people of color from if they are accused of voting illegally, even if they know they're voting, even if they know their registration is up to date and they are legal voters, they might back away. Okay. So we're going to skip ahead here. So this is something that we've been dealing with for some time now. It isn't just Samuel Alito. This goes back a ways. In fact, when John Roberts was first recommended for the Supreme Court, it was the late John Lewis that testified against his appointment. John Roberts, who is the Chief Justice, has a long history of racist pursuits when it comes to the law. In fact, in an article written by uh, Miles Mogulescu, uh, just a few days ago, the, art, the uh, headline is, The Roberts Court is like Strom Thurmond in judicial robes. 
Now, for younger people who are unfamiliar with Strom Thurmond, Strom Thurmond was a Democrat, but he was a notorious, notorious racist. I mean, he liked the Ku Klux Klan, and frankly, there wasn't a voter suppression Jim Crow law that he didn't just adore. All right. And it turns out John Roberts and him worked together. In fact, it's sad to say uh, President Biden at one point, I think, bragged about how back in the old days when people were civil, you know, he could work with someone like Strom Thurmond. Well, speaking as a woman who is a minority, part Hispanic and a religious uh, minority as well, I take big exception. I'm insulted by the fact that President Biden thought that this was civility and he could work with someone like Strom Thurmond, who, in my opinion, may as well be a Nazi. Okay. Too many people do not understand this country that the Confederate flag and the KKK are to people of color what the swastika is to Jews. There is no difference. Let's talk about this article because it speaks to the history on the court and how a chief justice can really carve out a niche. So it turns out, you know, since his days at the Harvard Law School, John Roberts has, as I said before, made it his personal mission to undermine voting rights for minorities. You know, he was he wanted to enable voter suppression. He pretended not to see gerrymandering, and he was fine with uh, in basically increasing the influence of big money. So you have to understand the history. When John Roberts marched in Selma, he was... Um, when John, going back in the 60s, when John Roberts marched in Selma, he was nearly beaten to death. And this was a peaceable march. Now, this is why the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act of 1964 and 65 were pushed, because, again, the whole world was seeing the ugliness of Jim Crow, the evil of racism in the United States. At the same time, you had Klan members marching in hooded robes, lynching black people to terrorize the civil rights movement. Understand, a lynching isn't just a beating. At many of these lynchings, people were strung up and hanged to death. These Klansmen committed murder in plain sight, and nobody did a thing to stop them. Okay. And the chief Dixiecrat ally in Congress at the time was Strom Thurmond. He even used the filibuster, the talking one, I suppose, to prevent civil rights legislation for blacks. Okay. So John Roberts, you know, he's just as bad as the racist Dixiecrats. I'm just going to say it, all right? He graduated from Harvard Law School, and he clerked for then Chief Justice William Rehnquist, now, Rehnquist from, I believe was, I think it was Wyoming or Arizona, Rehnquist was himself a racist. He participated actively in poll watching, aggressive poll watching to, to intimidate voters of color before he, before he was appointed to the court. And this is who mentored John Roberts. Okay, so John Roberts was a 20-something. He went to work for President Reagan's attorney general after he clerked for Rehnquist. And when he was in Reagan's DOJ, 
he was handed the job of making the case against renewing key provisions of the, of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 did have time limits on it, unfortunately. Uh, I guess that's what they had to do to pass it at the time. So periodically it had to be renewed, and in the, during the Reagan administration in the early 80s, that was one of those times. Um, there was a colleague at the Justice Department who preferred to remain anonymous who was quoted as saying, I remember him being a zealot when he came to having fundamental suspicions about the Voting Rights Act. Okay. Um, and one of Robert's memos, apparently what happened was John Roberts, when he was at DOJ, just produced memos nonstop because he, he was really working feverishly to make sure the Voting Rights Act died. And one of the memos, when it came to violations of the key protections of the Voting Rights Act, um, so let me read this quote. According to one of Robert's memos, violations of the key voting violations of the key protections of the Voting Rights Act, quote, should not be made too easy to prove. And then John Roberts allied his efforts with Strom Thurmond. All right. But they lost the vote, thank God. But then John Roberts worked his way up in Republican circles and through the Federalist Society. And then he went back and forth between corporate law and jobs in Republican White Houses. And then, of course, George W. Bush gave the, the gift that still, still abuses us to this day. He appointed John Roberts to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And then in 05, he was again under George W. Bush. He was nominated to succeed William Rehnquist as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Now, that's really highly unusual. Usually you have to go through the ranks. John Lewis himself testified against John Roberts' appointment. But apparently the story didn't really meet, didn't make the media. So as John Lewis, Representative John Lewis, testified against John Roberts' nomination, he said the following, quote, had Judge Roberts' narrow reading of the Voting Rights Act prevailed, fewer people of color would be serving in Congress and at both the state and local level today. We cannot afford to elevate an individual to such a powerful lifetime position whose record demonstrates such a strong desire to reverse civil rights gains that so many of us sacrifice so much to achieve, end quote. And we know the history. George W. Bush cursed us with John Roberts. The Congress, the Senate approved his nomination. And uh, now John Roberts has used his position as Chief Justice to bit by bit destroy the Voting Rights Act. And it looks like he's finally done it. Okay. Now, this is what we're dealing with here. As I said before, when the Shelby case came, Justice uh, Sotomayor wrote her dissent, and she wrote, in, uh, this is a quote from it, quote, if a single statute represents the best of America, it is the Voting Rights Act. It marries two great ideals, democracy and racial equality, and it dedicates our country to carrying them out. Citizens of every race will have the same shot to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. They will all own our democracy together. No one more and no one less than any other. 
end quote. But once again, the Roberts court destroyed the Voting Rights Act, first with Shelby. But what they did is they chopped off the two main branches of the Voting Rights Act. Branch one was to prohibit enforcement of Section 5. Section 5, as I said before, required states and counties with a history of racial discrimination when it comes to voting to basically be pre-cleared from the Justice Department or a federal court if they wanted to change anything in their voting procedures. And this was to make sure that any changes at the state level would not result in, quote, a denial or abridgment of the right of any citizen of the United States to vote on account of race or color. So then basically what happened, the illegitimate judicial overreach of John Roberts in the Shelby decision, Roberts, basically Roberts said that, quote, the racially discriminatory practices of the states that required preclearance no longer existed. Um, then John Roberts went further to say that in Shelby that Congress was wrong in renewing the preclearance the pre provisions of the act. Roberts went on to say that renewing the preclearance provisions of the Voting Rights Act violated the constitutional rights of the states to set their own voting laws. And his decision held that preclearance based on Congress's findings of racial discrimination was unconstitutional and unenforceable. Keep in mind, he said that what brought about preclearance, that that situation, that racism no longer existed, but he didn't offer any evidence, zero, nothing to justify that, that, that opinion. And, but it didn't take long because the day after that, the Shelby decision, um, the Republican controlled legislature, I believe in North Carolina, passed a voting law that made it harder to my, for minorities to vote with what was called, what was called, quote, almost surgical precision, end quote, according to the Brennan Center. Okay. We know that at that point in Shelby, just, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote a dissent as well, saying that throwing out preclearance when it has worked and is continuing to work is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you are not getting wet. And since then, American voters have been deluged with this type of injustice. But then John Roberts wasn't done. No. He used Alito to help him out, though. In 2021, in the Brnovich case that we were talking about, they basically struck down the other main branch of the Civil Rights Act, which is Section 2. And Section 2 says that voters are allowed to seek what's called judicial relief. In other words, they're allowed to sue if they believe a state or local government has either denied or limited their voting rights on the basis of race, color, or membership in a minority group. And it's this case that we've discussed today that achieves this as injustice sponsored by John Roberts, and yes, his fellow racist and what I'll call consigliere, Justice Alito, all right? Am I calling Alito a mobster? Yes. So again, we're looking at Brnovich. They said the Arizona laws that void votes cast at the wrong polling place and that banning third parties from delivering absentee ballots wasn't discriminatory, okay? And here's how the Supreme Court destroyed Section 2. 
All right. Um, excuse me. That was that insurmountable obstacles thing. All right. If basically the obstacle is not insurmountable, then it doesn't get judicial relief. In other words, the court won't hear it. And the voter suppression goes on. So Kagan, again, in her dissent on Brnovich, there's a few other quotes here. She said, quote, the majority's opinion, it mostly inhabits a law-free zone. Okay. Um, she also accuses Justice Alito of ignoring the text of the Voting Rights Act and making up his own, uh, his own set of five criteria that are basically insurmountable. He calls them guideposts, and those guideposts are used to determine whether a voting law is discriminatory. Uh, and again, some of the made-up factors, as Judge Kagan calls it, has to do, one, with the size of the obstacle to voting. All right? So basically, um, Alito said that, quote, mere inconvenience cannot be enough to demonstrate a violation. So apparently the fact that Native American voters that live on reservations, they have to drive many hours to drop off a mail-in ballot wasn't enough of an inconvenience. So maybe there was a Native American grandmother. She's too sickly to drive for hours. She gives it to her son. No, won't work. Um, and so there was this ban on third parties. Again, unless it's severe enough, an insurmountable obstacle, it's not going to be something that you can challenge. Again, we don't. Well, it, what is an insurmountable obstacle? Alito doesn't decide that. This is again very loosey goose, very vague language. And so I agree with Kagan. He made it up. He ignored the text of the Vi Voting Rights Act which is ironic because if you are a strict constructionist, you're supposed to view the law and, and a textualist, you're supposed to look at the actual text of the law. But in this instance, because the actual text of the law is something that gets in the way of the racist on the court, like Alito, John, uh, Alito, Roberts, and the rest of the conservatives, they will just ignore the text of the law and just make some stuff up. And Kagan called him out on it, and God bless her for doing it. So there's more to it, though. Alito also said the voting rules um, that are similar to the ones in effect in 1982 when the Voting Rights Act was last uh, extended are likely to be legally non-discriminatory. Alito wrote, quote, it is relevant that in 1982 states typically required nearly all voters to cast their ballots in person on election day and allowed only narrow and rightly defined categories of voters to cast absentee ballots, end quote. So basically Alito's telling the states that you can limit absentee voting, you can restrict it even. And even if that restriction or that limitation has a discriminatory impact, and or a discriminatory intent, it doesn't matter because absentee voting was rare in 1982. You know, so basically extending absentee voting during a pandemic, no, they don't have to do that. Not according to Alito. So once again, Alito also found that a state claiming that a statute, uh, a voting statute, a new one, is justified to prevent voter fraud. He's saying that's relevant. Uh, in 
let me back up again. So when Alito looked at Trump's steal the vote campaign, Alito decided that a state's claim that a statute is justified to prevent voter fraud, that that's relevant if you're trying to determine if voter discrimination is illegal. Uh, so if a state screams voter fraud, that's why we had to tighten things up. And if some people were discriminated against, too bad, so sad, Alito's fine with that. But keep in mind, Alito's not only agreeing with the voter fraud accusations, he provided no evidence that voter fraud is a, that it is a problem. None. And the state of Arizona, in defense of its own discriminatory laws, didn't provide any evidence that voter fraud was a problem either. In fact, under this ruling, states don't have to prove any voter fraud. This is a license, as this writer says, to give tenuous excuses. So basically, Alito gave, and John Roberts and Alito and the conservative bloc gave individual states the green light to continue making the accusation of voter fraud, to use that as a justification for discriminatory voting statutes at the state level. And they don't have to provide any evidence of voter fraud, that the same voter fraud that would say that they have to have these, these statutory changes. And that's, that's asinine. So what can you do about it? Well, first of all, and this is obvious, you have to, we have to end the silent filibuster. That's number one. Then we have to pass the For the People Act with every provision intact and the Joan Lewis Voting Rights Act as well, period. And then we have to, we have to basically pack the courts so that we can undo the, uh, you know, the, the whole host of these cases. All right. Um, you know, we have some Democrats that are claiming that we have to protect the filibuster to protect democracy. Nonsense. That has absolutely, in fact, the filibuster is key to it all. It keeps coming back to that because essentially the procedural filibuster is unconstitutional. Now, when members of the Senate claim they can set their own rules and the Constitution says so, well, that's true. But the Constitution does not say that they can pass unconstitutional rules. And that's what the filibuster does. It denies equal representation. And that's, those were advisory opinions that have been in effect since 1957. The Republicans themselves used it to end the silent filibuster on Supreme Court nominations. So there's absolutely no, and we don't need the Republicans, and we don't need Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema to end the filibuster. All we need is for the vice president to do her damn job as presiding officer of the Senate, declare the, filibuster, the silent filibuster to be unconstitutional because it denies equal representation, and that's it. We're done with it. And then we can pass the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and we can get rid of money in politics. But see, that would require the Biden administration, along with Kamala Harris, to back us up. Period. It is not about this bogus bipartisanship where Joe Biden is yucking it up with Kirsten Cinema. That nonsense has to stop. Period. We need to demand that. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris do their duty. This isn't just my opinion. This is an opinion 
that was written and published in the LA Times by the, and it was co-written by a, the dean of the UC Berkeley Law School, Erwin uh, uh, Shermer. I'm sorry, people. Um, Shermer, ah, I can't talk now. As well as the uh, professor John Newborn at the NYU School of Law, Erwin Shermervich, the dean of the UC Berkeley Law School, and John and Bert Newborn, the uh, a professor at the NYU School of Law. You can read it yourself, but the fact is we can't we can't correct this. We we also need to pass the Judiciary Act of 2021. I'm backing up a little bit here. Um, it would expand the number of Supreme Court justices from nine to 13. And so people that claim that's court packing, the Republicans already did it, all right? Um, we need to add justices to unpack the court. And then we need to pass the For the People Act with all of its protections intact and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act as well with no boundaries on, in other words, no time limit, but we can't do any of that until we end the silent filibuster. It keeps coming back to that. It just does. So as we saw today in conclusion, we have a Supreme Court where the conservatives have taken over and where we have racists on the Supreme Court, John Roberts and Samuel Alito to start, and Kavanaugh as well. And we have this block that is determined to rescind any of the protections that they have. They've rescinded, they've destroyed the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And the only way, well, they destroyed that, and they've also made up law. Justice Kagan is right. Justice Alito, instead of looking at the text of the law, he just made stuff up. He used vague language that is not quantifiable at all. So what what's what would amount to an unsurmountable insurmountable obstacle? I don't know. And the only way to stop that, the only way to have a functional democracy again, I will reiterate, is one, yes, we must pass the Judiciary Act of 2021 to basically add Supreme Court justices to neutralize the racist on the court now. Two, we need to pass the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act in order, in all its entirety. And three, in order to get any of this done, we must end the silent filibuster. And we can do that. We need Kamala Harris to do her job as presiding officer of the Senate, declare it unconstitutional because it denies equal representation, and then we can take it from there. We don't need to, to um, negotiate with political terrorists like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and political terrorists in the GOP. That's it. It all hinges on Kamala Harris doing her job and basically declaring the filibuster unconstitutional. That's it. And then we can undo all of this and we might actually be able to save a democracy. I know it was a lot to take in, but that's my report. And that's it for us this week. Thanks for listening. See you again next time.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.